Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fresh Start Podcast, a show where we share success principles, explore the stories, experiences, and journey of real people in order to provide newcomers with strategies to succeed. My name is David Ojeenka. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Farah Kasemi. Farah is a financial services partner in the global business services arm of IBM and serves as a global lead account partner for TD Bank Group. She is a seasoned client and market leader, having spent the last 15 years exceeding industry and account growth targets for some of the world's leading professional services and technology powerhouse in Canada, US, UK, and continental Europe. Before joining IBM, Farah held financial services leadership roles at KPMG Canada, CSC UK, PwC UK, and PwC Canada. She is very passionate about inclusion, especially as it relates to women and visible minorities. Having spoken at length on both topics at industry events, she speaks English, Farsi, and Hindi fluently. Please help me in welcoming Farah Kasemi. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Farah. Thank you for having me. Um, so to kickstart our conversation today, I've read about your bio, I've read your story, but there's more to an individual than what their bio can tell. So tell us more about the early days. Came to Canada as um, an immigrant, 17 years of age, by myself. Wow. Had never ever been to Canada before then. I landed, um, nobody to pick me up by myself. <laughs> wow. um, but yeah, I uh, I grew up, uh, traveling. I am half Middle Eastern, half South Asian. So my mom is Iranian from Iran. And my dad is um, from Pakistan, um, from uh, where he was based um, before he met my mom standpoint. But actually, he's from um, uh, an ethnic group called the Hazaras that are uh, originally Mongol. And, um, and they're, they're, they're probably one of the ethnic groups that are most wronged when you look at history. Uh, even to this day, there's actually a big ethnic cleansing happening against the Hazaras in both Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's heartbreaking. If you've ever read the book, Kite Runner, it was written about the Hazaras. So I grew up in, um, uh, so my family was mixed race, me and my siblings. And uh, I grew up not quite fitting anywhere because I, I was not full Iranian. I was not Pakistani. I, I was, my dad was, was from Pakistan, but he didn't speak the language. He had a very thick accent and uh, both of the countries uh, in my childhood were going through some kind of war or conflict. And, and we grew up traveling quite a bit because of my dad's work. Uh, so Europe, Middle East, South Asia, mm -hmm. and uh, I moved to Canada when I was 17. So uh, lots of moving around, eldest of four kids. Wow. A mom who worked and did not stay at home. Um, I was a tomboy. My mom was a tomboy. 
Um, I had to exhibit leadership skills from the very beginning because I was the mm -hmm. eldest. Mm -hmm. In some ways, we were very blessed because, um, you know, my, my mom and dad had their own business. So it was a bit of feast and famine, but at least we were okay. But in some ways, it was very difficult at every junction. Um, and also, my mom passed away a couple of years after I moved to Canada. So I had to become a mom to a 12-year-old and two teenagers overnight because I was the eldest. And uh, it sucked. So I would say, in some ways, um, yeah, early days were, were interesting. In some ways, we were very lucky because we were traveling a lot and we had access to um, education and English speaking education and uh, things that some of my peers and friends and cousins didn't have. And in some ways it was very hard, especially after my mom passed away. Wow. So thank you so much for sharing that. As you we were speaking, I was taking notes, writing, and something that is still not clear to me is when you came at the age of 17, what brought you to Canada and what was it like um, when you came? Yeah, so I, I came here to study. So okay. I came here after high school uh, to study. Um, I started in engineering. I came here to do university. Okay. And um, I moved to Canada again, a country I'd never been before. Um, I, I, I don't even know why Canada over other places. I mean, we'd been to Europe a lot. We'd mm -hmm. gotten exposure to the UK and um, I, I just wanted to do something else and different and and I read about Canada and it, I, I liked that it had such a big immigrant population and mm -hmm. you know there was a lot of me never fitting in anywhere wherever I was growing up and mm -hmm. I thought Canada would be an easier place to fit into just because you know the majority of people in the big cities were actually not from Canada so mm -hmm. I think that was probably one of the reasons and it was good education and I was trying to pave the way towards um, a good career uh, with lots of hopes and dreams. I landed here. <laughs> Fantastic. That's that's really interesting. Okay. Um, I started in engineering and mm -hmm. this was in the late 90s when everyone thought, you know, if you want to be successful, go and study computer engineering you'll go to school for four years and then you're set for life. And it was right before the dot-com boom. Um, so I, I was completely clueless. I didn't know what I liked or what I needed, what I wanted to be. I just kind of took courses and I heard it was the hardest to get into computer engineering. So I applied for that and I studied day to night for years and years to be able to get in to the universities and colleges that I wanted. Um, and then, you know, university was a very uh, pivoting part of my, my life uh, mm -hmm. due to a few reasons. One, because I finally found myself, I believe, mm -hmm. what I liked and didn't like. And, um, you know, I'm at IBM now, so I'm, I, I don't know if I want this to get out, but I don't really like coding. That's not me. I'm not mm -hmm. an engineer. I'm not built like an engineer um, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the time I spent in the labs late nights. Um, I worked late nights all the time, but I wasn't enjoying myself. So that was one of the things that happened during university. Like I said, my mom passed away. So I feel like I had a relatively easy 
life until my mom passed away. And then I had to take ownership of a family and uh, become a mother overnight myself. And then mm-hmm. um, I had to deal with things like estate and inheritance and family feuds and not having access to money and just, just some very big things that a, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that a teenager shouldn't have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the second big thing that happened in un- university. And then the third big one was because of all of it, uh, when I took some time off to go deal with our family issues and came back, mm-hmm. I didn't go back to engineering. I went into business. Mm-hmm. And uh, because my dad had three other kids and had to support them, I had mm-hmm. to support my own way forward. Mm-hmm. So I started working and... Mm-hmm. Um, necessity is the mother of invention. So mm-hmm. I started um, a couple of companies. I started a business on campus as a sponsorship manager. I found all kinds of ways to stay employed. I put up posters. I managed a copy center. <laughs> I um, distributed flyers for parties. I threw events, whatever it took to 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 you know find the funding to stay in school Mm -hmm. i think that was the other thing right like i i found ways to um you know be creative and make Mm -hmm. money and be employable Mm -hmm. was forced into it and uh yeah so i i finally finished my studies in business and marketing and uh, and through it all, I started a couple of companies. I started an oil and gas staffing agency. Um, mm. I uh, did some, I did a lot of marketing, sales, sponsorship. Those are probably the themes that were. I I did some work on Facebook. I remember back in the day when Facebook had just started. I um, I did this thing at my university where. I basically said, don't pay me anything. I'll just keep 20% of every sponsorship dollar I bring. Mm. And, um, and I don't think the person who signed that contract quite anticipated mm-hmm. how, how much they'll end up paying me as a result of it. It was a big learning experience, I'm sure, for both me and them. And uh, yeah, I just kind of had to find my own way and probably learned the most during those early years, trying to find a career and a job while trying to study at night. So I would work from nine to five and I would be in school six to 9 p.m. <laughs> wow, that's that's a very, very inspiring story. Thank you so much for sharing those in, intricate parts of your life and your journey with, with us today. When you heard about the, the passing away of your mom, and because you said earlier that you were the one who has been caring for your siblings as a first child, the onus rests on you to, to lead them forward. How did you manage all the responsibilities that were thrown at you at that early age? God, you're asking questions, I'm getting goosebumps. I don't think I ever felt like I was leading in any way. It was more about surviving and keeping our head up water. And I don't think my siblings thought I was leading them and I wasn't. We were all just trying to survive and and figure out how to kind of grieve while, you know, I remember my sister, who I think is the actual, I should have two sisters. One of them was first year of university, hadn't finished yet. And the second one was the last year of high school. And they're the heroes, because I remember I got the call. So we only found out that there was something wrong with my mom a month before, a month or so before she passed away. And so I had to like get on a plane, 
go home on the way, pick up my sister from the UK who had actually from university who didn't know that my mom had cancer. Um, nobody told her because she was going through her exams. And then my, my second sister who was at home, this is the weirdest part. She wrote half her high school final exams before my mom died and the other half after she died. And so we were all, and then my brother was 12 and he didn't know what was going on, right? So he had this beautiful kind of family. Um, we were fine, we were doing very well. And then all of a sudden, all of that got taken away. So, and my dad was just a mess because he, um, you know, he lost his partner in his life and also his business partner. My mom used to run all of his business with him. So, I think we were all just kind of, you know, a big rug <laughs> under our feet and take it away. And we all got into survival mode. So um, all of us had to kind of assume a bit of a role. I had to, uh, you know, my two sisters had to kind of figure out how to get back to school and, and figure out their studies. My brother was just trying to uh, stay, you know, a child. And then I had to help figure out how you do inheritance and estate matters. And then my mom's family kind of, we got into a bit of a feud with them because they basically, as a result of which all of our assets got frozen, we were stuck in legal battles for years. And it's just a lot, it was a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody, uh, as one of the, you know, we were four, so five of us, one of five, and we all had a role to play. So. Um, so it was interesting. It took us a few years to come out of that experience, but I also think we're so close right now and each of us is who we are because of that. So my, my sister uh, that's younger than me, she's at Amazon um, in Luxembourg out of U the Europe. Mm. My other sister, a younger one, she's in Dubai. She works in oil and gas. She lives mm. by herself. And then my brother, my little brother that we all thought was so little, he's in Montreal and um, he works at CN Rail um, and, uh, and he's an engineer too. All of them are engineers other than me. I'm wow. the black sheep of the family. Wow. My dad is an engineer too. So uh, yeah, we, I mean, it all, you know, this is, this is a long time ago, but I think we all find, found our ways and my dad is very healthy and um he's in his 70s now and he's a grandpa now and me having right. a kid so right. you know so i think i think it was a pivotal point in our lives and i i truly believe in that right i mean we all have stories and we are who we are because of what we went through how did you find courage and strength to keep going during those difficult times well i think i had I was spoiled too, right? I mean, I think we're all blessed in certain ways. Um, a couple of things. I don't think I truly got over my mom's death until I met my husband, my now husband. Um, we've been together for 15 years now. And um, and he's been a very, very strong support system for me. Um, you know, I've always been able to do whatever I want in my career because I have a very strong and supportive spouse in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I started at uh, PwC, my first kind of corporate job in banking. Uh, before that, I worked for myself for a good five, six years. Mm -hmm. And um, I was at PwC and I rose up the ranks and I really, really loved what I did. 
but at a point, I just felt like I had not worked abroad and I really, really wanted to do it. And I brought that up with my husband the uh, year we got married. So probably I waited until we were married to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> and then we just bought a house. We just finally gotten everything we wanted in our lives. Both of us were in stable jobs. I was at PwC, he was at GE. We bought a house, we got married. We'd had a beautiful, tiny little wedding with everybody that we loved alongside us. And then I, I brought up the idea of us going abroad to work. And, um, and, and he, you know, at first it wasn't something he wanted to do, but he, he saw, he saw it and he, he, he understood the reasons why I wanted to do it mm -hmm. and uh, he wanted to do it too. And he supported me and, and he traveled, you know, across the Atlantic with me and we, we kind of kept building our lives around my job and his job and we just figured it out over the years so i think i think it's those um you know probably one of the biggest things was having a support system around me um and i think and he always says he says you don't talk about me in your public speaking um you know opportunities and i and i actually thought about it he's so right because he's been such an important uh, reason why i am where i am i think mm -hmm. uh, he jokes that when he met me, I was kind of, you know, hustling between <laughs> five different jobs. I was throwing concerts while I was, uh, you know, studying at nights while I was doing some sponsorship management and, and events and, you know, working in Silicon Valley remotely. And, and then we grew up together, both of us, right? We both met each other in our 20s, in our early 20s. And um, uh, we grew up together and... Thankfully, so far, our relationship has survived all of that. And um, I don't know, it was also probably my upbringing. My mom was a very strong woman and she was a role model and mm -hmm. never, she too never quite fit in. There was always people who were like, oh, you have four kids. Why aren't you staying at home? And why do you have a career? And there's always people who judge you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and she was the target of a lot of things. She was a target of racism and sexism and ageism and all kinds of isms. And um, I think that strength probably gave me strength. And um, also I had, you know, I probably made, you know, my husband and I were looking back, we, we were saying, you know, we've made some good decisions, like moving to the UK together, moving back from the UK, mm -hmm. the career changes we both made. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those to me, I mean, some people may call it failures or, or, or disruptions. I call them really good decisions that brought us to where we are. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And like I said before, you're a very strong woman. You've been able to go through all these difficult times and you, you're still smiling through everything. That's, that's impressive. <laughs> At what point did you decide to move from owning an agency to getting into PwC. Can you take us through that journey? <laughs> I don't think it was as methodical and planned as you're making it sound. Um, <laughs> it was probably, I joined PwC right before the first uh, down economic downturn. And I think I just saw, well, a couple of things actually, now that you're making me think. Um, I was in Montreal, my husband was in Toronto, back then my boyfriend, mm -hmm. and um, I just felt a lot of the opportunities, job opportunities were in Toronto for me. And the guy I was seeing was in Toronto, even though I didn't want to be the girl who moves for a guy. But <laughs> um, I, uh, so I started kind of moving to Toronto, uh, 
you know, spending more and more time in Toronto. I don't think my dad quite knows how much spent time I spent in Toronto all those years that I was living in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I think, you know, it's just my contracts, a lot of the, it was actually, actually, I got into PwC because I was contracting for a couple of people who were at PwC. So I joined PwC more as a, as a contractor um, in a couple of capacities before I actually joined full time. It was just, it all kind of just happened, right? I was, every job or opportunity of mine or contract or client of mine, it just kind of led to something else. Mm-hmm. And then PwC was probably my first real full time permanent corporate job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting, right? Because I was not an accountant. Mm-hmm. I was not, you know, a technical professional by any stretch of imagination. And I was trying to move up and I was um, in banking, um, an industry I had zero exposure to before I joined PwC. I'd been in oil and gas and telecom and, and um, communications, um, but never, never banking. And um, I think, you know, probably the person who hired me, I actually went for a drink with him right before COVID. And I told him that the fact that he took a chance on me Mm. was insane. Like he brought me on to become the account manager for the largest banks in Canada without having any experience in banking at a time. It was right before kind of the economic downturn when he probably had a lot of options. probably saw something in me and I didn't let him down. Mm -hmm. And um, lo and behold, we did very well. Um, This was when PwC was trying to build back its its consulting practice, Mm -hmm. um, you know, after the sale to IBM and then back. And so it was an interesting time. Um, and I like how, you know, your career comes full circle. So mm-hmm. I'm now at IBM. <laughs> so I was working back then with a whole bunch of ex-IBMers who had joined back PwC. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was an interesting time. And banking, I just found myself in banking, even though at first I was nothing like my peers in banking. I was probably younger by decades. <laughs> um uh, you know, com- relative to the partners I worked with. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, you know, I was this chirpy woman, uh, you know, with, with a very different background than a lot of the people I worked with. Mm-hmm. And my clients also back then, right? Banking was not as diverse as it is today, about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it was it was an interesting change but I've always been up for big changes right I moved to Canada when I was 17 alone um, you know bright-eyed and bushy-tailed so mm-hmm. I, I've always been like that I love change I I get excited and energized by change and uh, PwC I love it I still I grew I feel like I grew up there from a career standpoint I'm still in touch with all my old colleagues and bosses and 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 coaches um and it was also with pwc that i moved to the uk which um it has a pwc has a very special place in my heart because of all of those things let's talk about why did you decide to go to move to the uk why not another part of europe why not france why not sweden why not belgium 
Why so London? France has a very special place in my heart. Paris, <sighs> anywhere south of France, any of those places. Um, I think what happened was um, I started, first I got the buy-in from my husband that will move abroad. And then I started, um, I had some very, um, you know, people, I'm, I'm very lucky at PwC who, who supported my ambitions and referred me to some senior partners in different geographies. And I remember there were two or three opportunities. One of them was in the UK, one was in Singapore, and one was in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I had this pro and con list, this big piece of paper in our living room where we had different options and different countries. And we landed on London because uh, my family was there. My two sisters were, one of them was in Scotland. The other one was in London at the time. Mm -hmm. So close to family. And um, we thought it would be probably a bit of an easier transition than Asia. Although I love Singapore and Hong Kong and I want to work there at some point in my career. Probably at some point we will, I don't know. Um, but we, there was a whole bunch of reasons why we landed on London. It was also the job opportunity and the role that I was being offered. It was an in insurance as opposed to banking. And I remember um, this, the, there was a partner at PwC at the time. And he told me, he said, in this day and age, you want to diversify your portfolio of industries that you are getting depth in. And until then I'd spent you know, a good six, seven years in banking and he said, you should go into insurance and, you know, the one place in the world to learn insurance is London. So I moved there for the role and, and the job. And I had a really good boss that I loved and I'm still really good friends with. And um, yeah, I, I'm glad we landed in London, even though it wasn't as exotic as I wanted it to be. If it was, I would have probably picked like a Singapore or Hong Kong, just because I think it would have been at the time, I thought it would be a lot more exciting of an adventure than just boring London. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but London was amazing. We were traveling every weekend. We were close to everything. We went all over Europe, um, Asia uh, when we were there, traveled quite a bit. And also from a career standpoint, I think both of us really grew, both my husband and I. Great to hear that. Thank you. Now let's talk about you moving back to Canada from London. What was it like when you came back to Canada from London and how did you forge ahead to get to where you are today? Um, that's, that's another story. It was so funny because I grew up at PwC and, um, and I was in London at PwC and then I, moved, I, I left PwC to join uh, CSC, which is now DXC Technology for a year. And I thought, I was, that was it. I was done with the accounting world. I'd already risen to as high as I wanted. And it was time for me to do something different. And technology was just everything I was doing was technology. So I wanted, I was just excited by it. So I started talking to the Accentures and IBMs and, um, you know, CSCs of the world. And I picked CSC, uh, it was the year before they merged with HP to create DXC technology. And my boss at the time said, uh, he said, the reason why Farah picked CSC is because normal people run away from fire. Farah <laughs> runs towards fire. <laughs> and so it was, it was an interesting one because it was a company that was not 
as established as the accounting world or the big four that I worked with, but it was also very big and very well known. It was just not as known in my industry in banking mm-hmm. and very well known in the government sector, for example. And these were big, big, big IT um, programs and contracts. And I just wanted to, again, learn something new and go somewhere where I'd be a little bit out of my comfort zone. And then when I was there at CSC for about a year, it was good, but it was it was just not, it was right, like I said, it was like the year before they merged. And I felt like during that time, there was so much upheaval in my, you know, kind of career upbringing. And I'd gotten to a point where my husband and I were craving to come back to Canada. Like we just spent three or four years in London, you know, traveling, partying, having fun. So we were ready to kind of settle down mm-hmm. and just like slow down. And, um, and the experience at CSC was absolutely amazing. But we just started looking at perhaps coming back to Canada. And that was when I remember I used to um, do quite a bit of volunteering with United Way before I moved from Canada. And through the United Way, I met um, a, a senior partner at KPMG, not PwC, mm-hmm. <laughs> KPMG, the direct competitors. Um, uh, and, um, and she was the one who I kind of stayed in touch with just from the outside. And there was a role coming up at KPMG in banking uh, to lead their, their financial services business development function and be the uh, global relationship director for two of the big banks, for TD and RBC. And uh, so she contacted me when she heard that we were looking at moving to Canada. And she said, this is a role that's come up. We're, you know, interviewing a whole bunch of people are, are, are interviewing for it, if you were interested. So my husband and I kind of said, okay, let's just see what happens. And then I honestly didn't think I was going to get it because I thought there were these you know, a lot older, probably men <laughs> who were interviewing for this role. That was very, very banking. Um, and I remember I went to my panel interview and I was so busy at work where I didn't have any time to prep for it. I just got in a taxi, went to Canary Wharf in London and did a remote kind of video interview with a panel at KPMG Canada. And then And then I never heard back from them. So I thought I didn't get it. And then when the person who would be my boss contacted me, his EA contacted me to set up a call. I set it up for like a Friday at five because I was sure it was like a rejection call. I said, nobody contacted me for two weeks. And then I remember I was at my, I was sitting outside my gym Mm -hmm. in my gym gear, took this call. And then they basically told me that they're offering me the role. And I was so shocked. I was like, but why? Like, why are you picking me? I'm the youngest person you were interviewing. And, and he thought, and he just laughed. He said, obviously you've got all the credentials and you presented really well. And you've got all the contacts you need. And, you know, I always, you know, what we call imposter syndrome this, these days, I always mm-hmm. thought maybe I, you know, I wasn't, maybe I wasn't experienced enough. Like, how did they pick me? But that's amazing. So we got back and then my husband and I now had to decide. And the funny thing is all of our stuff had arrived from Canada to the UK, like six months before. Mm-hmm. So we're like, oh my God, we're going to move back. 
So I don't know, again, we moved back for the company and the role and the opportunity, and we just really wanted to kind of settle back down. So I commuted for the first six months. My husband stayed in London, and then he moved uh, to Canada too when I got pregnant <laughs> during our, our trips back and forth. And I just started a new role, and I was like, oh my God, all this is happening. We're happening a lot faster than we planned to, but I guess we're gonna become a family. So we had to like, get out of temporary accommodation and find a house while I was in the first six months of a new role. So that's how kind of how we moved back to Canada. It was a little bit of chance and luck and following a job. And, uh, and then us uh, finding out we're going to be parents probably accelerated the move too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's go to your one of one of the things you're really passionate about because in researching you I was inspired by a passion for diversity with inclusion what does diversity with inclusion mean to you and can you tell us about what inspired this passion yeah I think um oh my god there is so much so much that probably I mean the fact that as I said to you I grew up in a mixed race family and I just never fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. None of us did. My family just didn't. We never felt accepted on either sides of the proverbial borders that we were in. Um, so I think from very early on, just seeing what my mom went through because of the choices she made in life, I think I just felt that, you know, the fact that just generally our brains are wired so much to not be inclusive, actually. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of it is based on childhood and and then just trying to make it in the world, you know, in a in a bit of a male-dominated industry uh, like banking. Um, and then what it means to me, I think I honestly think inclusion and diversity, to me, it's about not one thing. It's about systems, policies, you know, procedures, laws, tools even unintentional language and cultures that foster inclusion mm-hmm. um, that don't ex- exclude people just because you know they are they're not like you because mm-hmm. you know that fear of the unknown mm-hmm. not being you know resulting in not letting in to me is is what needs to be broken. And in my life, at least, I've seen it translate into glass ceilings, right? And and whether you're a woman or a visible minority or have an accent or have a different, come from a different culture than most of the people you're around or you work with, um, or, you know, just, just as pregnancy and early motherhood, the stuff I went through and some of the things I heard, I was shocked to hear in a place like Canada. Mm -hmm. I think all of that has just built, not, you know, it's at the time when you, when you feel these things, right, you feel anger and aggression, but it's about turning that energy into helping in whatever way you can to change those systems, policies, procedures, tools, culture, unintentional language, as I said, um, 
to bring about inclusion and diversity, that to me is very, very important. It's not just something I talk about mm -hmm. or I get on a soapbox and rant about. It's something that I really, really try to use the, the tools I've been given, the privileges I've been given through mm -hmm. my role and my you know industries and my platforms to bring about those changes. I really, really do care about that. And I call people out when I feel like something's wrong. So, you know, International Women's Day is this week. And, uh, you know, all of these things, you know, whether it was Black History Month last month or International Women's Day or, you know, any of these celebrations um, and just the times we live in, right? I mean, you can't, it's not a nice to have anymore for mm. companies and corporations and countries and communities. Um, something we all have to do and not treat as a, as an afterthought. Thank you so much for, for speaking up, for being brave. So you've spoken about the twists and the turns you've gone through to get to where you are today. It's obvious that you're a good storyteller and which is one of the characteristics of great leaders. But if you can bring everything home now and just make it clear to our listeners, what are some of the core strategies that you have used to navigate your career journey that you want to pass across to our listeners and maybe the next generation of leaders. And again, I don't know if it's going to work for others and maybe it's going to be counterproductive for others, but mm -hmm. a few of the things that have worked for me are a couple of things. I've never been phased by a no, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, when people, you know, whether it's bosses or clients or uh, peers felt like I couldn't do something. It actually resulted in motivation for me to prove them wrong. And that's, that's one of the big things. So I, I always tell people don't be phased by um, rejection and failure. Mm -hmm. Use it to learn from it. Like learning is so important and continuous improvement is so important. We're all humans. We're all continuously refining and getting better at what we are and who we are. So uh, to me, rejection and failure are actually really, really good things. So just don't be phased mm -hmm. by it. There's so many reasons why someone's going to tell you that you can't do something and it's not always the reality. There's, mm -hmm. there's things, you know, that are leading to somebody saying you can't do something. So to me, I've never been phased by no. <laughs> when somebody said I couldn't do it, I just followed my heart. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and when it came down to it and I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously, I've left the company or the job or the role and I've paved my own way and it's been hard and I've had to make some very difficult decisions. But I've always said to people um, who would listen to me, and I don't know if it's worth anything. I've always said, follow your passion because we all work very long hours and, and we work hard in this day and age. And if you're not passionate about what you're doing, then why do it at all, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, you know, I, I look at myself when I landed here when I was 17 or, you know, all of the times I, I landed in London, that was, that was a big move, even though we all think Canada and the UK are very similar, it was not. Um, so I always kind of look at what helped me in those times. I, I think it was about being open to learning and training and volunteering. Um, and, you know, new immigrants, for example, in Canada, 
We invest a lot in language skills, mm -hmm. but we don't really invest in training and culture and soft skills. Those things are important, right? So, so I've always done it. I'm always trying to find time to continuously reinvent myself and refine myself. Mm -hmm. I've always been a volunteer. Um, and then lastly, I think it's also about being humble, mm -hmm. but, but also know your worth. Right. So being humble is really, really important. And, and, you know, none of us is above volunteering and doing some free work and investing to be able to be taken seriously, but also know your worth. Right. Mm -hmm. So don't give it all away. It's, it's an art and a science. Right. You mentioned that you made very difficult decisions. You've made very difficult decisions in the course of your career. Can you give us a story of one difficult decision you made? How you got to that decision eventually? Oh gosh, so many. <laughs> a couple of instances, like last year when I left KPMG, mm -hmm. I, I had to find myself again uh, later on in my career and figure out where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And I spoke with everybody in my entire network and and I had a, I had a coach an executive coach and and it was very difficult to decide what and who I wanted to be and where I wanted to land mm -hmm. and I think and, and I started IBM January 2020 so a few weeks before the pandemic uh, lockdown and um, it was the best decision I made in hindsight I love IBM. I love where I am. I love the culture. I love the people. I love how it's all about how good you are and your performance and nothing to do with your age or your pedigree or anything like that. I love it. I love it. It's exactly where I need to be. So it was a difficult decision around kind of trying to figure out in your mind what you want to be and where you want to go. That was probably a difficult one. Another example is, you know, when I uh, had a baby, mm -hmm. I decided very early on, I wanted to take a short path leave. And um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But it was so difficult for me to come to terms with it. First of all, I was a first time mother. So I didn't really know what to expect. But I also felt our society is not built for women kind of taking short mat leaves and trying to do both, right? Be a good mother, hopefully, that I think I am, but also, you know, get back right to work. Mm -hmm. And I felt judged and I felt literally people told me to my face that I was being a bad mom by uh, going back to work so early. But that was the only thing. That was the only way I grew up. That's how I saw my mom growing up. She had four kids and, and she worked throughout the time. So I, I wasn't used to seeing 12 month or 18 month long mat leaves. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that was just my decision and my choice was to take a short, shorter mat leave. And everything, every day decisions I make as a leader, as an executive, as a mom, I doubt myself. Every day I feel like I'm doing something wrong. How, what if I'm breaking my kid forever and ever by, 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 by making decisions that I do? And it's always self-doubt. You're always going to have self-doubt, right? But I think all of those decisions, as difficult as they were, um, have landed me in a, in, a, in a very good place. So I don't regret any of it. <laughs> You're a very strong woman. I've said that a couple of times. Oh. Right? 
I have to reinforce that. Thank you so much for all you do. And uh, thank you for honing your decision. So now let's talk about your mistakes. I'm sure you've made a couple of mistakes along your journey. Can you tell us a story of a time you made a mistake and how you corrected it and the lessons you learned from, from that mistake? I'm sure personally I've made mistakes. I, I got a call a couple of weeks ago where somebody called me and called me out and they had a long list of things I had done wrong. And, um, you know, you learn from every mistake and you learn from every interaction and every decision you make. And, and I like to talk about it all because I think, you know, people think that, you know, we just don't hear enough about the mistakes and the vulnerability that our leaders have. And we're all humans, right? So, you know, to me, Failure, I think I, I said earlier, is, is a good thing. You learn from it. You get better because of it. Your skills get refined. Your soft skills get refined. A lot of mistakes are communication mistakes, right? And mishaps. You'll learn how to handle them. There's, there's a lot. You could probably write a novel about all the mistakes I've made. But I would like to also show in front of every one of them what I learned and how it ended up being good for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, would, that, would be, that would be very good. So let's talk about immigrants now because you can relate very well with them. The Conference Board of Canada estimates that underemployment causes immigrants to lose out on up to $12.7 billion in wages each year. How do you think the Canadian economy can benefit from their skill sets when private sector recruiters and job search algorithms generally do not even consider job applicants who have no prior Canadian corporate experience? Yeah, I think I think I touched upon this a bit earlier in our conversation. You know, to me, I think as immigrants, we need to be open to learning, to training, to volunteering. But also we as employers and the government of Canada, we need to invest more in the success of our new immigrants, right? Because right now we just don't make it easy for them. Why should a doctor or a trained engineer or professional from other country have to restart their qualification program and get set back years and years and years in, in their careers and in lives just because they come to Canada, right? So let's let's invest in them, let's trust them. If, if there is a matter of training and culture and soft skills, as I said, I think Canada only takes language seriously. What else are we doing to try and make it smoother for our immigrants to be successful and for us to be able to take advantage as an economy um, from this highly, highly skilled resource pool uh, that, that lands in Canada. And our immigration system is a skills-based, right, points-based immigration system. And, and whoever passes it is, is highly attractive, right? In any country, why aren't we making it easier for them? I know there's a lot of programs already, especially in the last few years. Um, and I know of many organizations I've been involved with, I've volunteered with that are helping new immigrants uh, to succeed. But I think it's not enough. I think we all need to do more. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Finally, imagine sitting across an internationally trained immigrant. What advice would you give to them to navigate their career journey? I would say be creative, be open, be positive, don't be phased by no, <laughs> right? 
um, and uh, and just keep at it, constantly learn, uh, invest in yourself, and just be positive, right? And and that energy and positivity will get you a very long way. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add? Yes, I think you know. Just thinking about some of the things we've spoken about in the last hour. I would say to everybody, right? Overcome your biases. We all have biases. Identify them. Don't make assumptions about people, right? Whenever somebody sees someone, like don't just from the first 10 seconds make assumptions about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, let let people be who they are. Empower them, you know, encourage them and create especially in this day and age with the pandemic and everything. It's so difficult. Let's all just give each other positivity, energy and space to grow and be who we are. Wow. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you for your contribution to the Fresh Start podcast. Thank you. Thank you for doing something so, so valuable and powerful and, and creating a forum for people like myself to, you know, tell their stories, but also more importantly for others to hear them, right? In this Mm -hmm. day and age, we all need it. We all need to just hear each other's stories. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fresh Start. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with someone you know and love please go ahead and subscribe on any platform you listen to your podcast. And also please take a moment to leave us a review because that would help us to reach more audience. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FreshStartUp. If you know any newcomer you think would be a good fit to interview for the podcast, we'd like to hear from you. Please go to www.thefreshstartup.com to nominate someone. We appreciate you and remember... No matter how hard the past is, you can always begin again. Take care and have a great week.